Thank you for joining us here at All Nations. My name's uh, Michael, I'm on staff here. And if this is your first Sunday, you caught us on a great Sunday because we are starting a new series uh, in the book of Genesis called Gospel Origins, Gospel Origins. Now, uh, we're gonna probably say this throughout the entire series, but the reason why we chose to preach through uh, the book of Genesis is because Genesis is truly uh, the foundational book for the rest of the Bible. There is no book in the Old Testament, no book in the, in the Bible that is more foundational to the biblical worldview, the Christian worldview, and even a gospel-centered worldview than the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis establishes the baseline for, for how we are to understand God, how we are to relate and connect with God, how God communicates and, and makes himself known to us. Genesis opens all those doors, answers all those questions for us. In fact, if you read the other books of the Bible, they all actually assume that the reader has some understanding of Genesis. You, you guys know that. Like if you read any of the other books of the Bible, uh, just the way that they speak about God, the, the way they talk about covenants, what it means to be God's people, what it means to uh, be in exile, but redeemed, saved, and, and, and all of those things, they, they assume that the reader knows something about Genesis, know who Moses was, know who Abraham was, know the story of creation and the fall. And so Really, it is so foundational. And the sad thing is, for many of us, man, we can't remember. When's the last time you read Genesis, right? We're like, oh, that's one of the long ones, right? We're like, oh, I'd rather read like Philippians, you know. Uh, if I'm going to do an Old Testament, maybe, you know, a couple of Proverbs here and there. But man, Genesis is one of the long ones. So I realize that in our church and just in our generation, um, we are biblically impoverished. Uh, we're, we're in so many ways biblically illiterate, uh, mainly because we don't read the Old Testament and we don't know the book of Genesis. And so that's why we're here. Um, we, uh, yeah, we're, we're excited for it. But because it is one of the longest books in the Old Testament, uh, we're actually going to break the book of Genesis up into four uh, sub-sermon series. And so we're not going to go straight through all 50 chapters because that will just, you know, get tiring and exhausting. So we're actually going to do about like five, six, seven week series. And we're going to break that up. And we're going to do that from this year into 2017. And uh, by God's grace, we will make it all the way through, um, taking a couple breaks here and there. And so we are really excited for it. Today's message is titled, Maker of Heaven and Earth. Maker of Heaven and Earth. And we're going to be looking at one of the most famous passages of all of scripture, the creation account. If you have your Bibles, this is the easiest passage to turn to in the entire Bible. <laughs> Turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to read all the way through Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 3. It is the easiest passage to turn to. Uh, it's always also going to be up on the screen for, uh, for your convenience. It's a long reading, uh, but I hope that we would uh, regard it uh, as it really is, the, the word of God. That's holy, sufficient, and, and perfect. And so may God bless the reading of his holy word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. 
And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let, the, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the field of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day 
from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Amen. Amen. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that today we can model and practice what you, what you demonstrated and, and practiced for us on that seventh day when you rested, when you set, ap- set it apart and made it holy. Father, we want to honor the Sabbath today. Father, we want to commune with you. We want to acknowledge and worship you as the maker of heaven and earth. We pray, God, that at this time, you would bless the preaching of your word. God, would you speak to each and every one of us? Would you strengthen, renew, establish our faith, not in ourselves, not in this world, but in Jesus Christ, our rock and redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, uh, thank you. That's, a, that's probably one of the longest scripture readings you guys have heard in a really long time. But as we like to say it here, here at All Nations, it's the only perfect part of the message. So it's all downhill from there. It's all downhill from there. Um, I'm excited to kick off our series. Unfortunately, as, as great and as famous as Genesis 1 is, it's actually one of the most difficult chapters to preach in the Bible. And the reason for this is because it's actually so divisive. It's extremely divisive. It divides believers from unbelievers as they consider, dude, do, do, you, do, do we even believe in this creation account? Do we believe in these six days do, or do we believe in, in evolution, the Big Bang, and, and, all, and, and all of those different kind of competing worldviews at times? And so you might be sitting here today and you read Genesis 1 and you might think, man, hogwash. This is a myth. This is just a story, right? You don't believe that. And so immediately we see division. We see division between believers and unbelievers. Even more so, we actually see great division amongst believers. Uh, With Genesis 1, there are so many different theories, so many different interpretations on what to make of the six-day creation account, right? Uh, the, The traditional famous one is called Young Earth. And that means that you believe that when there's morning and evening, just like for us, it is one day, morning and evening, that God literally just created the the heavens and the earth in six 24-hour periods. That's the old earth. Many people believe that. Uh, Many of my professors at Talbot believe that. Master Seminary, they definitely believe that. And um, and, And I'm assuming many of us in this room might believe that. Then there's another position called, oh, no, no, no. They're like, no, I don't believe that it's literally 24 hours. I actually hold to something called day-age theory. So this is a second one. I'm just speaking in the first person, but that's not exactly me. And so some people interpret each day, not as 24-hour periods, but as long periods of time, as eras, as epochs. And so like, yeah, you know, and that will give like the earth and and, and things to kind of develop. It can't actually happen in 24 hours. So there's day-age theorists, right? And then there's other people that think all you guys are so anachronistic, like out of time, so out of date, don't you know science? So there are actually Christians who believe in evolution and they are called theistic evolutionists. Theistic evolutionists, where you believe in the Big Bang, not the TV show, that scientific event, right? Uh, Thank you for that. I don't have that many jokes, so that was like the last one. Um, (laughs) You believe in the Big Bang, you just believe God started the Big Bang, right? And so you you can be a theistic evolutionist. There might be some among us today. That's cool. 
And then there's a fourth one called framework uh, theory. And framework theory is simply, you actually don't believe that the Bible's teaching science that Moses isn't trying to make this kind of creation scientific argument. He's up to something different. And that's called framework theology. And, and, and you'd be amazed at how heated Christians get over what you believe uh, regarding Genesis 1. I've, I, I've actually like, seen and felt people who are like the literal six-day creationists feel that, man, you are a raging liberal if you don't believe in 24-hour periods. I mean, where is your faith? Right? Where are you? I mean, God said, right? It's, it's literally morning and evening. There was, you know, like, do you not believe the Bible? Do you not take it, you know? And so um, people get heated. People get serious. It, it is divisive, and that's why it's really difficult. Um, several years ago, there's a really cute commercial. Uh, I think, like, eSurance released it. And it depicted three, like, grand, uh, grandmas, grannies, and they're all sitting in a, in a living room. And it was super cute. And they're just trying to, like, figure out how to use social media. And so this one lady was like, oh, you know, I'm saving so much money because... This year, I'm not sending out postcards from my vacation. I'm just posting all my pictures on my wall so everyone can see my vacation. And then the second granny's like, ooh, I like that one, right? And, and you know, she's like, dude, you're really smart. You really got this Facebook thing figured out. And then the third lady is like just shaking her head in disbelief. And she, she just says over and over again, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. And then the first granny looks at her and says, I unfriend you, right? Um, it's really cute, super endearing. And honestly, it's kind of how I feel when I think about the way that the Christians, uh, we, read, we misread Genesis 1. I don't think uh, many of us understand how it works. I think many of us have really missed the point of Genesis 1. We think that the key to understanding it is centered on, on whether we're right in terms of the science, the dating. Uh, we, we, we think the main agenda for Genesis 1 is to respond to evolution and the Big Bang Theory as if, as if those things could possibly true. It's going to lead our, our church and our whole faith in this crazy downward spiral. And so we fight. We fight for, for our positions, our interpretations. But I personally believe that the point of Genesis is not to give a scientific account of the world. There may be scientific and cosmological dimensions to Genesis 1, but that's not Moses' main purpose when he wrote it. Neither is it mere human history. Okay, Genesis is not science. Genesis is not mere human history. Why? Because human history is made up of humanity recounting its experiences, right? So we experience something, we write it down, we bear witness, we have accounts of, of things, whether it's war, historical events, sports events, it makes it in, in the newspapers, we write books about it. Well, who was there in the beginning? No humans were there to give uh, an eyewitness account. So it's not really human history. No, Genesis precedes human existence. So what's the point of Genesis 1? I believe that the Apostles' Creed gets it right. The Apostle Creed gets it right when it begins with the declaration, I believe in God, the maker of heaven and earth. I believe in God, the maker of heaven and earth. Genesis 1 is about God. Genesis 1 is about God. That's why the very first phrase of the Bible in our, in our English translations, the first four words simply say, in the beginning, God. 
In the beginning, God, Ravi Zacharias, this Christian philosopher and apologist said, if you give me those four words, I can believe the rest of the Bible. If those four words are true, in the beginning, God, everything else is believable. Everything else is tenable because of who God is and his power and his abilities and his attributes. Derek Kidner, he, he wrote a, a famous commentary on the book of Genesis. And this is what he says. He says, it is no accident that God is the subject of the first sentence of the Bible. For this word dominates the whole chapter and catches the eye at every point of the page. It is used, used some 35 times in as many verses of the story. 35 times, All right? Chapter one has 31 verses and we read three more. And so that, that's God every verse plus one. God is the subject, not nature. God is the subject, not man. God is the subject, not science. Genesis 1 is written to tell us about who God is and what he has done. And as such, Genesis is not just history, it's actually theological history. And to actually do better than just theological history, I believe it's redemptive history. Genesis is redemptive history. And what that means is Genesis is describing the framework for how we are to understand the entire arc of the Bible. Okay, it begins with Genesis ends in Revelation, and those actually bookend what's known as the Christian worldview or redemptive history. And there's four parts to it. It is creation, sorry, creation, fall, redemption, glory, okay? Creation, fall, redemption, glory. And you see how, yeah, yeah, that begins with Genesis and it ends with Revelation. And uh, that's what Genesis is about, how God is working through the entire story of humanity, the entire story of this universe for his glory and for our good. So today in the brief time that we have together, I wanna focus on the main thrust of Genesis 1. I don't wanna get bogged down with all of the details, like what are the creeping things that are creeping all over the land that get to creep everywhere and Adam's gonna have dominion over the creeping things that creep on the ground. We're not gonna worry about what the creeping things are. Um, I've got three main points I wanna focus on from the text. And we're gonna look at first, the, master's, uh, the maker's power. Second, we're gonna look at the maker's purpose. And lastly, we're gonna look at the maker's rest. Okay, Genesis is about God. And so we're gonna think about the maker's power, the maker's purpose, and the maker's rest. Let's start with the maker's power. Let's look at verses one to four one more time. Um, I'm just gonna read it and just really hone in and listen for God. Listen for what Moses is saying that he has accomplished, what Moses is saying that he, uh, who Moses is saying he is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. The Hebrew word for God here in verse one that's used, it's Elohim. Elohim, and that's the first name of God in the entire Bible. And that name depicts God as transcendent, God as majestic. Elohim represents this transcendent relationship that God has to his creation. Theologians talk about this important distinction between the creator and the creation. If we get those two things mixed up, if we acknowledge the creation as the creator, we are idolaters, right? 
If we think of the creator as the creation, it's too lowly for him. It is beneath him. Elohim reminds us that God is above, that God is transcendent. And in verse three, we see the power of God demonstrated as he speaks creation into being. Think about that. It's so unhindered. It's so direct. God simply says, let there be light. And then what happens? And there was light out of nothing. When the earth was formless and void, God spoke all of creation into being. This is another term that the, uh, this is what theologians mean when they use the term creation ex nihilo. Creation ex nihilo. It's a Latin term, but you can kind of figure it out, right? You're like, well, of course, creation out of nothing. That God created the universe from nothing simply by the power of his word. Okay, so, um, but, but here we are. We are living in 2016, and I'm going to acknowledge the fact. I'm going to assume the fact that not everyone here simply takes Genesis 1 at face value. I don't, uh, I don't necessarily expect you to. Right? It's not what we learn in our science classes. It's not what we learn in our physics classes or astronomy classes. It's not what we learn in our grade school. And if you study the sciences in college and graduate school, it's, it's pretty hard to tell everyone, to tell your professors, to tell your classmates, oh yeah, I believe that God created the world in, in six 24-hour periods, right? Or, I be, you know, like, or, or day age or, or whatever it might be. I've really noticed, I personally noticed Christians were pretty quiet uh, about this issue. Kind of like you don't want to tell anyone who you're voting for, right? You're kind of like, oh, that's personal. Our, our position on creation is kind of personal as well, especially if you're in a conservative group and you kind of hold a, a little uh, progressive view. Um, now, once again, I, 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 I'm not here to argue for one, but what I do want to pause and argue for is the fact that I believe the intellectual and uh, philosophical evidence points to a creator rather than the lack thereof. I believe creation ex nihilo is an intellectually tenable and intellectually superior position to hold over the agnostic, over the atheist, over the unbelieving physicist or scientist. And so I'm, I'm gonna go there really quickly. Uh, this is a little bit of apologetics, uh, but I'm gonna use a couple of, of slides because I don't believe in blind faith. I don't believe we should just kind of turn off our minds, turn off our thinking, just turn away from our education, the things that we're reading and things that we're learning, the things that we actually believe are facts. And then say, oh, but I just have to believe this despite what I think, right? Um, I believe Christianity should be intellectually satisfying and tenable. And so let's go with the first slide. Uh, this is gonna summarize what's called the cosmological argument, cosmo cosmos, you know, universe. And so um, this is a famous argument that Christian apologists have used to defend both the existence of God and the fact that, that, that the universe did not create itself. This is what we believe. So the first premise is this, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Okay, whatever, whatever begins to exist has a cause. We're not using any Bible verses for these arguments. We're just thinking and being logical. And that's very true, especially in this physical, natural world. Things don't just make themselves, whether it's music, whether it's the arts, whether it is, you know, um, yeah, just physical things don't just manifest and show up. Something has to cause it. 
Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Second premise, the universe began to exist. Christians believe that, non-Christians believe that, okay? Uh, you can be the atheistic, you know, um, uh, cosmologist and you'll hold to the Big Bang theory. You just don't believe God started the Big Bang. You believe that something else uh, uh, established that. Well, the conclusion then is this. Therefore, the universe has a cause, and this is where the Christian argues his position, and the best explanation is an infinite and personal God. Okay? So everything has a cause, right? The universe began to exist, so we believe that therefore so the universe has a cause. Something caused the universe, and we believe the best expl explanation, infinite God. Now, one more slide to kind of back this up, okay? Um, actually, before we go into there, Big Bang theorists, they believe that the universe is about 13 billion years old. I looked this up on Wikipedia, so it has to be right, right, guys? Um, and uh, if you don't believe in theistic evolution, you just believe in pure evolution, uh, the result it's actually really kind of hard to nail down because it's so speculative, but it's uh, the result of energy, temperatures, pressures, elementary particles, and then this perfect X factor, time. Time, all interacting in a perfect sequence of events. And this is really important for the, uh, for the atheist um, cosmologist because even if the odds of the Big Bang are like one in whatever crazy trillion, billion, gazillion, what they'll say is, well, with infinite time, you, you can get there. That can happen. Does that make sense? It doesn't matter if the odds are one in a Google. They'll be like, you'll eventually get there if you have an infinite amount of time to make the right sequences and, you know, uh, things happen. Um, and so, but here's the problem. This is where we push back. The belief that things could have just infinitely existed, that before the physical universe existed, there were kind of gases, temperatures, elementary particles that somehow started interacting and then causing a big bang. It just doesn't hold up. Like, where did those come from? What caused those into being? But if they say, oh, they just were always there, then we push back. And this is the, art, this is the impossibility of actual infinites, okay? Um, premise one. Temporal series of events are formed by successive addition, i.e. time and historical events, okay? Uh, I know those are like kind of weird phrases, but just think about this, okay? Um, yeah, just you can count and time, like everything's moving forward uh, for things to happen. Everything is sequenced out, okay? Those are temporal series of events. So, I mean, even just, okay, you guys get that. Okay, second, premise two, the collection formed by successive addition cannot be an actual infinite, okay? So are there infinites? And I would say yes, but only in theory. So there are infinite numbers. You know, there's that little squiggly line sideways turned eight as like an infinite, right? Um, yes, there are an infinite number of fractions between the number one and number two, right guys? Right? You just... Keep splitting it up over and over. But all of that is only theoretical, okay? There's nothing that's physically actually infinite. It feels like, oh, there must be like an infinite number of grains in the sand of sand in this world, but that's not actually true. You know, it's countable, right? There must be an infinite number of water molecules in the, no, that's actually, no, it's actually countable. We just don't know. We don't have, to, we can't count it, right? Um, so there are no actual infinites. Now, this is where time gets in. If you believe that time actually has infinite past, 
sorry, past is this way for you guys, right? If you believe that there's an infinite past of time, you will never get to the present, okay? Think about this, okay? If, uh, another way, if you have to walk across an infinite road to get to destination X, will you ever get there? No, right? No, because there are no actual infinites. And so that is the problem. If you're gonna say something has physically existed or something has actually existed in infinity past, with infinity past time to create all of these sequences, you'll actually never get to now. You'll never get to now, okay? But if God is infinite and God is spirit, not physical, and God out of nothing spoke creation into being, you can actually have a real beginning. We believe in infinite future. I believe there is an eternal future awaiting all of us. I do not believe that there's an eternal past behind us. We would never get to here. There's only one person, the alpha and the omega, God himself, who is infinite past and infinite future, right? And so, uh, and then we go back, okay? And, And so what this actually does create is if you believe in the big bang, I believe there's intellectual space for you too, right? I just believe the best explanation is God, okay? The best explanation is God, not infinite particles and infinite time that produced an infinitely difficult, uh, yeah, circumstance. Um, I hope that kind of makes sense. So uh, if you have any questions, we can talk more about it. I was a philosophy major. I don't know if I butchered that, but uh, whatever. Uh, I've got a bunch of resources. I'd love to point them your way. And uh, hopefully that will, will help you. Now, um, let's get back to the Mager's purpose. So the reason I walked through this detour is because I want us to truly believe that God is the maker of heaven and earth, okay? If you're, if you're, if you're, kind of stumbling over the six-day creation thing, that's not Moses's point. Moses wants you to believe that God is the maker of heaven and earth, who created the world out of nothing but the power of his word. This isn't something we have to take on blind faith alone. It's something that is biblically necessary. And like I shared, it's philosophically defensible. In fact, I truly believe that God offers the best explanation for the existence of the universe. Whether it's six days, six ages, or even the Big Bang, God really is the best explanation as the first cause of existence. Now, second point of the message today, the maker's purpose, okay? Maker's power is by his word, by his person. Second, maker's purpose. Not only does Genesis 1 teach us that the universe was created by the power of God's word, it also teaches us that God created everything with a purpose. And the purpose is this, okay? And, and you'll see it over and over again through our passage. For God to share his life and goodness by bringing order out of chaos. That's what God wanted to do. He is good, right? God is good. And what God wanted to do is share and demonstrate that goodness with all of creation. And that's why after every day, God looks at what he created, whether it was the light or the skies or the animals or the vegetation and the sun and the moon. And what does God say? He says, it was good. It was good. Why? Because he is a good God. He is a good creator. And he wanted to demonstrate and share that. But we're also gonna see that there was chaos. And what God does is bring order out of our chaos. Did you know that, that though there is no mention of sin in Genesis 1, there's still tension? 
there's still tension in Genesis 1. There's chaos. The tension is found in verse 2. Moses writes that the earth was without form and void, and darkness was hovering over the deep. The darkness was over the deep. And, 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 and this language is supposed to be disturbing on purpose. This language is supposed to be a little bit unsettling, this idea that, that, that there's no form, there's no, there, there, there's no design, there's no light. Where's the light? And there's no darkness there. But the Spirit was there. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and what the Spirit was doing was preparing the earth for life and goodness. See, the earth, before God spoke creation into being, was lacking form. It was, it was empty. It was lacking order. It was lacking productivity, lacking purpose, lacking life. And God wanted to change that. God wanted to bring life into this earth. And so every aspect of the six-day creation account is recorded to highlight the, the order and the design and the purpose of creation. So there's a formula, guys. If it felt redundant when I was reading it, it's because Moses did that on purpose. It's because, you know, like God is very organized. Myers-Briggs, he's like a J for sure, right? <laughs> you know? And so each day has a formula. It begins with an announcement, and God said, then there is a commandment. He says, let there be, let there be light, right? And then after that, there is a separation and an ordering, okay? You see that where the light is separated from the darkness. We see the water separated from the skies. We see the plants all ordered and separated according to their kinds and the animals as well. The animals are paired up with their kinds and, and everything is well-organized and well-designed. After that, there's a report. What happened, right? What happened? And the answer is what God said happened, right? What happened? So there was light. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then there's an evaluation, which is that famous refrain. He, God, God does his creative work, and then he looks at it and he says, it was good. It was good. And finally, there's that chronological statement, morning, evening and morning, the first day. Every day has that same narrative formula. And if you look at the next slide, there's a breakdown of each day of creation. I know that oftentimes when we, when we read it, we just kind of read it straight through in linear fashion, and you don't see the structure of the days. In fact, when I read it all the time, I forget like what happens on which day. We only know the first one and the last one, right? You know, the first day is it's light, and the last one is man, right? We're just so self-centered. Um, <laughs> at least I am. Um, and then we just forget the order after that. But you'll see that each day actually has a corresponding day connected to it. Why? Because God's designing this with a purpose. That this is more of a dramatic, powerful narrative than it is like a scientific sequence of how, you know, how to create a universe in six days, per se. The two categories that, that, that we see divided up is the form and the filling. In the form, we see the light. We see the skies, we see the seas, we see the land and the vegetation. These are the places, right, that God has prepared for life to occur, for flourishing to occur, for God's kingdom to truly be experienced and enjoyed, right? So that's the form, the light, the skies and the seas. And then after that, we have the filling. What's gonna go into the light? 
right? Where, 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 where's the light gonna be born and shining? And it's the lights. And that's actually the sun and the moon, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. And then the sky and seas, where, what, what's gonna live in the sky and the seas, right? What's gonna go there? And it's the fish, the sea creatures, the sea monsters, right? The birds, all of those inhabitants. And so on the fifth day, those inhabitants fill the sky and the seas. And on the sixth day, human beings that we would live in land and vegetation. Did you know there's a really interesting little side comment? Uh, you know that whole command, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. We always, I always thought God only gave that to us, right? But God gave that to the fish and the sea, uh, the sea inhabitants. So he says, you guys like, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the seas. But did you know God doesn't tell the land animals to do that, right? Do you know why? Because God wants us to be fruitful and multiply and rule, rule over the earth. We're not gonna like live in the sea. So we're not gonna compete for like space with like the dolphins. But God knew that we we're gonna be living in the land and the beasts are gonna be living in the land. And he only wants the crown of creation, Adam and Eve, the crown of creation, mankind, to be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. Um, anyway, so, uh, so that's the slide. What we see with each day, there is a progression. There is a progression. We see the earth. We see our world uh, just growing in form, growing as a habitation, growing in beauty, growing in goodness. And humanity truly is the crown of creation. And at the end of the sixth day, God looks at everything and he doesn't say, oh, it was good. What does he say? Oh, behold, it was very good. Very good. Now, why is this whole thing important? Well, first, it's to remind God's people that they are not abandoned and should not turn to lesser gods. So we believe that Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. It's called the Pentateuch or the Torah. So we believe Moses was the author of Genesis. But do you remember Moses' story? Moses grew up as a prince in Egypt, but his people, the Hebrews, were under Egyptian slavery. They were forced to acknowledge and, and be subject and exposed to these false Egyptian gods over and over again. And the creation account is a bold declaration that Elohim is greater than the Egyptian gods. The Egyptians, I mean, if you ever look up all the different Egyptian gods, it is a laundry list of the types of gods that they have. Gods for fertility, gods for the sea, gods for war, gods for crops, gods for the sun, moon, and stars. It is a huge list of gods. And yet for Israel, God is one. There's one God, Jehovah, one God, Elohim, one God, Yahweh. And the creation account intentionally, Moses, when he writes this, intentionally is making the point that we do not worship the creation, we worship the creator. That is actually why he, call, he doesn't name the sun. He doesn't name the moon. He just says the greater light and the lesser light. Why? Because the, for Egypt, Ra, the God of sun, was like one of their most important gods. And Moses is like, we're not even gonna name him. Right? Name it. It's, 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 it's such a lie. It's such a farce. We're just going to call it the greater light. But God spoke that into being. God spoke that into being. So the creation account reminds us of who the creator truly is. And to remind us that the creation's purpose is for mankind to flourish, not for mankind to worship. Okay? It's so important. Because so many people in this world, so many religions in the world have gotten that backward, worshiping the creation rather than the creator 
And Genesis 1 writes, like, you know, sets that on its head and says, you guys have got it all wrong. No, we worship the creator. Creation actually serves you. God put the sun and the moon and the stars for us to enjoy. God gave us the plants, the vegetation, the, the, the earth, everything for us to enjoy and to acknowledge God as a good, perfect creator. Well, we're not going to address actually the end of Genesis 1. I know Genesis 1, 26, 27 is that sixth day. Uh, we're gonna talk about the Imago Day actually all next week. Next week, we're gonna focus on a biblical understanding of humanity. That's called biblical anthropology. And so I'm actually going to skip over that, that last day and really focusing on humanity, but we're gonna go in there deep uh, next week. Um, lastly, we're gonna look at the maker's rest. The maker's rest, Genesis 1, 31 to 2, uh, verse 3. God saw everything that he made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God concludes the sixth day with the declaration that it was very good. A reminder that God created the world as a reflection of his goodness and out of his abundant joy. And after finishing his work of creation, verse two tells us that God had rested from all that he had done. And then he took that seventh day and he blessed it and he made it holy and he rested from all of his work. Now, question is why? Why would God rest? Well, it's not because he was tired. It's not because he was spent. It's not because he exhausted all of his divine power and he just was tapped out and he needed to kind of like recharge. That, that, that was naturally not, not God's reason for resting. Uh, one commentator said, you know, God rested to sanctify time itself. God rested to sanctify, to make holy time itself. Think about that. God took a day, not a thing, God took a day, God took time and said, this time is holy and set apart, not a created, not, you know, not, not an animal, not a person, not an object, time. And God set that one day apart as holy so that you and I might join him in his rest. God rested for your sake. God rested for our sake. And we are summoned to imitate the pattern of our king. Every week, we are to work six days or five days, if you have a good job, right? And rest on the seventh. And rest on the seventh. So that we might confess, that we might commune with God, that we might be renewed and experience him. That through our rest, God is Lord. That through our rest, he is the Lord of creation and Lord of all. We do not worship the created things. We don't worship our jobs. We don't worship our children. We don't worship our relationships, our possessions. We don't worship our hobbies. Even if you went to the beautiful beaches of whatever country, right? We don't worship those things. We come back every seventh day, every Lord's day and remember, we worship the creator, not the creation. Well, how does this apply to us? Because I know that for so many of us, we come to church every week and we don't feel like all that rested. We're like, man, I wish if I could have slept in and not come to this 945 service, maybe I'd feel more rested for Monday, right? 
Or how many of us, like, yeah, we, we just get exhausted because, man, you served a lot. Maybe it was hospitality day or you went out and served at Chapel of the Hills, a meal for our community, or you're on the worship team and you feel drained, especially since we started our second service. I feel more tired on Sundays. How does this change? How can we actually experience rest? And the answer is in Christ. Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, you know what he said? In such similar fashion to the Father, he says, it is finished. Jesus' work on this earth was complete. It was complete on that cross. And because Jesus completed his earthly ministry, he finished his work, he finished his task, and he accomplished that great work that the Father had for him. Jesus entered into the Father's rest. He said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And Jesus was reunited with the Father and he enjoyed again that eternal, happy, perfect rest and fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. And you know what Jesus offers to each and every one of us? He offers us his rest, okay? It is not rest for you to rest on your own terms. If you think, okay, I just need to sleep 12 hours today, watch Netflix for four, Eat, eat ramen, not get out of bed, stay in sweats and whatever. And you think that that is rest. You know what? You can do that over and over. You actually get really tired and really lazy and, and, and it doesn't actually rejuvenate your life. Our problem is we try to rest in our own ways, right? We rest according to our own standards. We try to make it up for ourselves. And what Jesus offers us is his rest. That's why in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, this is what Jesus says. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Church, are you tired? Have you been striving and working? Have you felt the chaos in your life and you're trying to order it? Jesus is inviting you into his Sabbath rest. He is inviting you to come and experience the peace, the joy, the security that only he can offer to you. This is why Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, right? The Jews that Jesus was encountering, man, they were hardcore about the Sabbath, but what they did was they heaped laws upon laws upon laws because they got just so bent up about the idea that the Sabbath is holy. You can't sin on the Sabbath. You can't break any of these rules. And what Jesus says, man, you guys got it wrong again. Man is not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath is made for man. Okay, I love that truth. The Sabbath reminds us that we do not serve creation. We don't even serve an organization here. If you feel like, man, I gotta come to church because I've got 21 things to do before worship starts and that is like your complete MO every Sunday, Jesus wants you to realize, hey, you don't exist for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is, is, exists for you. We serve God, we worship God. We don't serve creation. We don't just serve people. We have to believe and remember again that this is a day where we can worship God. This is a day where we can receive rest from him. Would you do that? I, I know that for so many of us, we're here to give, we're here to do, we're here to accomplish. But I really believe that today, there's some of us that just need to come here and receive the rest that Jesus wants to give you. Would you receive that? Let's pray together. Father, we 
We thank you that in Christ, we have someone that offers us a true Sabbath, a true rest, a true peace. We thank you, God, that you are this perfect, wonderful, effective worker, God. That in six days, Lord, you created the heavens and the earth. And Jesus, through your personal lifetime and through your ministry, you accomplished redemption for us. Lord, I pray that we would remember, God, that we are not called to simply work and labor and strive. We are also called to rest and to trust in you. Father, I pray for anyone here who may be unsure of where they are in their faith, not sure who you are, whether you really are the maker of heaven and earth. Lord, I pray that in your time and by your grace, you would reveal yourself to them and they would find you as trustworthy. They would find you as good and they would recognize that you are, uh, that you are an intimate, loving and perfect savior. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray, amen.